Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of ThinkTrading.com. I'm Tim Price of PriceValuePartners.com. And our very special returning guest is the philosopher, critical thinker and author, Martin Cohen. Martin Cohen, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome. Um, so we last had you on the show on, um, well, last year, it was September. How do you see the world since then? What's, what's changed, if anything? Um, it just seems a long time. Uh, someone, uh, there's a quote, nothing happens for, for years and then the years happen in a, in there a are, week. There are weeks when decades happen. That's it. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Yeah, it feels like that does feel like that but i also i also feel that time is moving in strange ways the, the perception of time for me during this whatever you call this predicament i think would be a polite way of putting it um is both time seems to be both accelerating and slowing down at the same time if, if you can if you can accept that which which may just be my own situation but it's partly because so many days are all the same seem all the same well yeah yeah the, the, the whole coronavirus thing is changed the perception of time um it's, i suppose it's about two years now or something but it just seems an endlessly monolithic period where all, all the normal structures of how you measured out years and your your, 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 your what you happened in your life really everything just turned into a bit of a mush but that that said the speed with which the narrative's just effortlessly been replaced to now war with war with Russia and Ukraine, and it's like um, a handbrake turn. I mean, it's like coronavirus never happened, which, which um, perhaps it never did. Yeah, no, that's right. It, it, it's um, depending on your perspective, but uh, I, I was struck by people. I think it was in Parliament. They were all still wearing masks and um, keeping fifteen meters <laughs> from each other. Um, but they were discussing people in Ukraine who, who were in, in bomb shelters and digging graves and things, you know, you know and, and the, the, the relative risks, it seemed extreme to me, you know. Don't necessarily have the most up-to-date information. And um, that's, uh, that's something that um, you've explored in, in some detail since we last spoke, because you've been, you've been very busy, haven't you? Ah uh, yes, certainly. So tell us a bit about about that and and um, you know what you've been working on. Um, well, so the the rethinking thinking book is, in a way, it's building on things that I've looked at for, for years and years and years. But it basically, it's it's about all the different ways there are of thinking. And and what's what's struck me about the current situation is people do say how very clever. Vladimir Putin is um, and from all appearances if you see him doing his two-hour telethons where he lectures people on on all sorts of things and they, they are people um, ordinary Russians supposedly ring him up with questions he knows all the facts about everything and he speaks um, apparently off the cuff etc etc and that we know people like that I'm, I'm not one myself i'm not a person who's at all good at speaking off the cuff um uh, if i give a talk i have to use notes really anyway <clears throat> he's clearly very intelligent in that way but i th- i think 
what the whole situation here underlines is there are different kinds of intelligence. Just as um, if if you want um, if, if you want someone to cook you a nice meal, it's not necessarily the same person as you want to mend your car. It's the same person as you want to do your accounts. I mean, those are skills, but there are also kinds of intelligences. Um, so, Mr. Putin, it seems to me, has, has shown extreme an extreme lack of intelligence and a lack of what you might call the the empathy uh, kind of intelligence, the the kind where you put things in context uh, because he has created a situation where um, his whole country has 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 alienated, I suppose it's about 90% of its customers um, and basically put it back as, a, as Tim was implying, I think, is it like the world's gone back um, to the 50s or is it maybe the 40s? I'm not quite sure when when we trace it back to, but it's gone back a very long time into a different era almost. Um, and he, he apparently, he said, or said, that apparently he's chasing up his intelligence services and accusing them of having given him very bad advice about Ukraine. Um, but the, the reality is, I, I don't, I'm not a specialist on Ukraine, but it was quite clear to, to me months ago, and I was tweeting on this, that um, Ukraine would, would be extremely um, resistant to, it, to any invasion. Um, and I know that because in, in, this is not in the book that we're going to talk about rethinking, rethinking. <laughs> It's in another book of mine. There was a little. It's a, it's a sort of book about humour, actually, of all things. Um, but there's a kind of East European humour, um, which is you're 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 given one wish by a fairy, and it, and the East European joke is you you wish there's a there's a condition attached to the wish, which is the same thing is given twice twice as much to your enemy. So what do you wish for? And you wish, you wish to have have one eye blinded, um, and the idea is that your enemy will then have both eyes blinded, and that that's a cultural thing in the in Britain and places we just haven't got. But there is that thing that people uh, are very much more um, inclined to, to do take a big sacrifice to get the other person to to, to be more. Um, <laughs> Did you, you get my point? Really? Yeah, yeah. To harm the other person is more important than to um, to think about their own kind of safety, or you know, they think of things in terms of what other people have. So there are certain people out there who are focused on, you know, their limitations, and when they see people past their limitations, they they get very resentful. And there are other people who who are quite happy to see everyone succeed. And so it's sort of it's sort of very Christian perspective, though. It's the exact antithesis of you know turning turning the other cheek. I find yeah, that, it, that's a, that's an interesting point, Tim. Because I, I personally, I'm, I know that I know that you you become more spiritual, and I I think from memory, Martin, I think you if correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you have an element of, of spirituality yourself, but. My experience of of um, of religious people is very often they they end up being um, the most hypocritical because they don't seem to um, kind of put into practice what they what they believe. And I know that from members of my own, own family who who I have arguments with about this stuff. And the, I'm not accusing anybody else of that. I'm just saying it's just kind of what I see. 
There's a line attributed to Gandhi, which may be apocryphal, but he said, I like your Christ, but I'm not sure I like your Christians. Yeah, that's a really good one. And there's a brilliant um, YouTube video of, 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 the, um, of Jordan Peterson, and he is not religious, but he makes a really brilliant point and I, I absolutely, I've got to share it with you because it's very powerful. It, was, it really, it really struck me um, because he said, "You don't have to be religious, but you can just act as though act act with belief." So, and I think that is exactly, you know, you don't have to believe in God, but why not just live your life as though God exists, and then try to, mm. and that that in, in itself becomes the reason. It becomes, you know, it it, it infers how you act. And I, I just thought it was amazing. It was very well put. He obviously he put it much better than me. Um, but I'll, I'll share a link to that in the show notes. M Martin, what's your thought? Yeah. What are your yeah, thoughts no, on I, that? I can empathise with that. I, I, I'm not actually a religious in any conventional way, but I, I do think there is something more. Um, and uh, in that sense, I'm a slightly spiritual. Um, I often go in churches. Um, not not for services. I just like the whole thing. The idea that it's very beautiful buildings that passed, uh, you know, maybe hundreds of years ago. People, very ordinary people, craftspeople, created. Um, not great sacrifice, really, when you think of the resources that go into a church compared to what the other buildings are. All the other buildings have disappeared, you know. And it's, it's an interesting thing that we have these buildings now really people are not christians and so they're empty most of the time but they're there they're, they're, they're kind of like art galleries to me um and i i just find that what they represent is that people believe there was something more than the material world and, and that i do i do have a lot of sympathy for that idea so it does that become a philosophical question then and and I, I, I think that leads into another question, if you don't mind me putting two together, mm. um, which is that we go through our education system learning facts and figures and how to do things like maths and what have you. Or not. Or not, as the case may be. But we're not taught how to think and teachers aren't prepared for anything that's outside of the normal sort of normal distribution pattern of of thought processes do you think that's a problem yeah yeah i i think you put your finger on the what i'd call in, instrumental approaches instrumental thinking um which is how how we are encouraged to see everything that everything has to be um directly useful um and and that is a problem because some people for example, um, we might we might value people and want to do things for them, even though it's not useful to us to do it. Um, and that's what we require in society is for people to have that um, desire to do things which are not useful for them themselves. Maybe it's it's maybe also come to a head with the, with the, with the present conflict. You see, you've got people you, you've got people motivated by the desire to hurt other people. But you've also got people motivated by the desire to help, um, and and that can be very uplifting. Um, and there's a people, I think, in in places like Britain, and they're saying over the thing like, should we be paying Russia now 
money, which is going directly into the, their war effort, paying for gas and things. And it, a lot of ordinary people that I've, I think are saying, well, actually, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be supporting that war effort through our payments for gas. We would rather get cold in our houses for for a while. Um, and and that's obviously there's no direct function for people to say that, but that's the kind of kind of calculation that. Um, it's all about your ethics, ultimately. And that's why I say I think churches represent um, a, a collective sense of, of there is a kind of a, a value to life beyond the instrumental. On the topic of education, there is a fabulous quote from Thomas Jefferson that you may be familiar with, which is, he who receives an idea from me receives instruction himself without lessening mine, as he who lights his taper at mine receives light without darkening me. I've always rather loved. Yeah, that's that's very mm. powerful. Um, so, in in terms Jefferson. of Jefferson, sorry, who who was it? Did you say it was him? Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Okay. Great, so great writer. So do do you think that the obviously this is a difficult question? Then I mean, you you mentioned the approach to Russia. Should the approach be more of a a carrot than a stick, as opposed to you know, like, the, for example, the more the more you push against something, the more it pushes back, and 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 so the more you know you you try to convince somebody of something who's disagreeing with you, <clears throat> the more they fight that view back and and believe it. Would the approach to Russia be an a, a, like a, a? Would it be better to try something unconventional and actually try to be? nice to them i know that might sound crazy but that would be so um that would be well, wasn't that, that the previous position being nice to them i mean the position for the last 30 40 years possibly yes but i think if you look at um if you look at why they want ukraine or why they want to control ukraine and crimea it's because that is their if they lose that control, then I think basically that's the end of Russia because all the satellite states that were part of the Soviet Union have become much more in tune with um, with NATO. And therefore, the risks that, that they are being more and more isolated continue. Now, I'm not saying what they've done is right, but I'm, I'm saying that, that their only warm water port access is via Crimea it's um and and so therefore that is strategically a very important um it's a very important uh you know area and they have to control it if they want to survive or they see it like that um now if if Ukraine had promised not to join NATO and they were happy with that but then suddenly changed their mind which is what they seem to do that to them would be completely alarming. So um, I'm not. Again, I'm. I'm. I know peripherally about about this stuff. There may be plenty that I I don't get. But if they think well, Ukraine becomes part of NATO, then bases go there. Then if the Eastern European countries can be weaned off um, Russian gas, then that's. That they are in a very very weak position, so 
they may be acting out of, in defense by doing this. Tim? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, was, I, was just, I thought pregnant pause is always worth having. I, I'm going to ask, answer a question with a question. You know, this is my want. Given, in, in the light of so much misinformation floating around, how do, you, how do you distinguish between one perception and another? In other words, who, whose reality or whose truth do you accept? It, it, yeah, that's, that's a very good question, and it goes way beyond this current conflict it goes into absolutely everything who do we believe and isn't everything just a perspective now that that's kind of why i try not to um have too many fixed views about what's right or wrong because because this is where this is where te technical analysis comes to the fore because the price is the price is the price and everything else is perception exactly and so and, and the reasons behind it can be explained and if i can explain it in a different way um you you can show two people the same photograph and they will have they will look at different things they will, their eyes will go to different things and they will describe it in different ways and that's that's something that's ultimately exactly the same you can have the same thing with something like a football match where you have you know two teams playing and the facts are what the score is and how the game was played yet two fans from either side will have a completely different perception about what actually happened on that game. But factually, there's no dispute about what happened. It's just people's biases and perception. Everything and, we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. And that's, that's why I really love Martin's work, because he, he's exploring those ideas and, and you know drawing attention to them. And I know we'll, we'll talk about his current book it perhaps now perhaps a bit later but that's what it's all about it's like the ability to think better to make better decisions in order to understand the world around us whether it be simple or complex in in terms of the questions i mean i mean we we tend we tend to think that there are these hard facts that's philosophers like to say you know like snow is white uh, two plus two equals four but everything really is context um and everything really relates to everything else so that there, there aren't exactly facts it's more like a tapestry um, and perspectives so that yes some someone can watch one thing someone can watch the same thing and come without with a different impression and it's not quite obvious that the, one person is right one person is wrong it's like there are two different perspectives on the same thing and they're both as, as the people say they're both <clears throat> valid yeah. So, um, so how do we guard against our own biases? Then, what what sort of tools can we employ to prevent us doing that? Um, yes. Well, if we go back to this present present rather uh, alarming and upsetting uh, conflict, um, <clears throat> where you've got a very extreme case you've got because I, I gather from the news reports that within russia there's actually quite a lot of support for what they're calling their military operation um and most of the information that they um are getting from the west they dismiss they say it's not true or just, you know um and conversely in the west um there's great shock and just people are appalled at what they can see now 
<laughs> I'm certainly leaning more to the Western view here. So let's be clear what my bias is. That's one thing you should do in in thinking is is you should work out what is your position because then you'll understand if you have got a bias, you'll, you'll be able to think uh, maybe maybe this is why I'm seeing things this way is because I've started from this position. Um, anyway, I know where I'm, where I'm certainly starting from this position. I I, I, I sort of feel. Um, puzzled about people in Russia who, who see things so very differently. Um, but obviously one thing that you can do, <laughs> it's a very simple thing, and then I like simple strategies, is you, you make an effort to seek out the opposite view uh, and then you consider it. And then when you've got the view the, that you think is correct and probably one that you're most familiar with and you have considered something put from the opposite perspective, presumably... That, that does slightly deepen your your insight and your ability to understand things. And I actually um, actually argued this, uh, Tim and Paul, in, in an article about science policy, which is more like the coronavirus, really, um, this sort of issue. Um, with the government might be taking a view on, let's say, um, do masks work? Okay. And you've got some people, some experts telling you that they do work and some people saying that they don't work. Now, if you're a politician and you're taking decision, perhaps making masks obligatory, as they have done, uh, particularly where I am in France, for so many things, including walking down the street. Um, no, you've got to wear yeah, a mask. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Whole, whole, whole towns, you, you know, they, they put signs up around the towns. You're entering um, an area where you must wear a mask. And I, I was stopped by the... French police, you know, they said in the, on a motorbike, they came up and said, you're not, not got your mask on, put it on. Wow. <laughs> so, so, but someone decided that the science supported this, that the idea that you could breathe a virus, um, across, you know, out in the street and then it would affect someone else. Um, and the point is that <clears throat> I, I think whoever's making those policies must consider uh, one re really quite serious uh, account from the other side. Uh, and, and I argued that in this piece in Nature. <clears throat> um, Nature, um, not the very prestigious journal, but it was some branch of it. But the thing was, they refused to publish it. They had commissioned it from me. Mm. Um, they said, I'd like you to write this opinion piece. But when I did it, I said, right, Policymakers should always seek out a contrary position on issues because then their decision will be better because they've considered it from two perspectives. And Absolutely. <laughs> we, we all think this, but the nature editors, they said, just we put it out to experts, they, they, you know, referees, and the referees said, no, I know, on, on a lot of issues, there's only one view and everyone else is wrong. And the, the one view is weakened when you when you allow contrary views because obviously if it's a, there's the right view and there's wrong views the wrong views are things you 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 you, you want to eliminate that, that was their position um and and they, they they refused to print the piece even though it was supposed to be a, a sort of debate piece wow. so they wouldn't actually allow the debate and that and that is really quite endemic in in uh in our culture. Uh, well, the, the last two years has been a complete disaster for science, full stop. And, and it's shown 
that you can't have an actual debate, you see. With that, um, exactly. With special committees, they've, they've all been packed with people with the same view. But this is exactly, exactly the problem. The problem is that you can't have a debate. And the problem is that you can't tell people that you can't have a debate. They don't believe you. They don't believe that this stuff is being censored. They, they, they think, broadly speaking, that, you know, if, if it appear, appears in a prestigious, whatever that means anymore, science journal, it must be right. And that it's not being edited. Um, it's not being controlled. And if you say any of that, you sound like a conspiracy theorist immediately. When actually what you're, you're doing is you're thin thinking critically about the situation you have at hand. No, even the people who were saying that you could potentially get some benefit from wearing a mask never said that it would help you outside outside i mean you see people in cars on their own wearing masks yeah. i mean i mean what 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 are they thinking are they obviously not thinking um wh who are they protecting on their own wearing a mask other than creating more germs around their mouth and possibly causing other th problems it's just, it's just the mind boggles um the the funny thing about well funny <laughs> curious thing about the coronavirus is how it moved quite abstract debates about scientific method right to the to the front everyone was talking about scientific method <laughs> yeah 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 and it but it just became um what i found was the people who were on the side of the government doing and acting and saying that you've got to wear masks once the the kind of science element of it fell away they would then appeal to more emotional sides like well it makes people feel better and and things like that which is kind of like well you know that's just nonsense isn't it i mean it, you know once you once you you could argue the opposite it could make people more fearful because they're constantly being reminded of of um of a potential threat even when that potential threat is acknowledged to be very much diminished with the Omicron variant and, and where we are now. Um, and, and people who are scared tend not to quickly change their position. So, you know, I know people who still won't leave their house and still won't, you know, yeah. lead a normal life because they are scared by all of this. And that, that, that just seems to get forgotten. So the other Sorry, go on, Martin. Yeah, the, the other thing is that it all, it all shows how everything is interconnected. So, for example, with masks, right? And masks um, as a physical barrier, you could have proper studies done, and, and um, particularly it seems like the only ones that could have any conceivable effect are the very, very high, highly um, unpleasant-to-wear surgical masks that leave your face all covered in wheels if you wear them. Um, and it, but nonetheless, um, mask wearing could have an effect because it, it does create this sense of um, a, an emergency. People just huddle in their homes. They cross the street to avoid people. So if you, you've got all these other consequences from a mask law, such as people don't go anywhere, they don't talk to people, they don't, you know, possibly that reduces transmission. So it would work in that way. But then there's the hypocrisy of it because you're, telling people that you're um, obliging them to wear a mask. And it had people, as we all have seen them, saying, oh, you know, it's such a little thing. Why don't we all do it? But the, <laughs> if in reality the thing is we're 
not really mandating masks. We're mandating a state of fear on, on the population, which is going to crush all normal interaction in life. That's, and that is what will reduce transmission. Um, then people might say, well, just a minute, that's rather a, a draconian a policy with a, a high price for, for, this, for this virus. It reminds me a little of, um, I don't know if you know the satirical website, The Onion. Uh, dot com, but they they have merchandise, and one 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 of their t-shirts is the sports team from my area is considerably better than the sports team from your area. So it's a rather sweet generic bit of, sort of sport sports competition humour. But this is this is just turning into a pissing contest of virtue signalling. Yeah, especially when the politicians don't follow the rules themselves and get caught out doing it on numerous occasions it's and the media doesn't call them out on it not not properly anyway i mean i know there's the mm. big infractions that have been caught but it's the little ones that they that they leave you know when the cameras are turned off and that they take their masks well, it's off. The, exactly the ritual of the demasking and the masking which is a complete i mean the whole thing's a pantomime but as i say um, possibly if they were honest they would the, the, the policy is not actually to wear masks it's to to create a state of fear and to have people cease to do normal activities, um, to spend more or less two years just sitting at home. Um, obviously, people go out to work, but you know, all the social activity was crushed. They didn't say, this is our policy. There will be no social activity for years on end, um, which, you know, that is the reality. That is what happened. Um, actually, it happened less in Britain, I know. I'm talking from the European continental europe here <laughs> um and it's been really dire here um do you, do you think that reflects a sort of cultural difference between the, the brits and and other european and, and europeans to say that we're maybe less biddable and slightly more cred you know um slightly more cynical if you like slightly more suspicious of big government um yes it might be might be that um it, it's there are certain things uh, that the British t went for that were actually more extreme than in Europe. I remember reading about the police entering houses and <laughs> using drones to deter walkers yeah, and yeah, the drones on walkers. <laughs> um, so I, I think we shouldn't over overestimate how how um, free thinking the British have shown themselves on this. <laughs> do, so, but, do, oh, sorry. If we take the French, which is obviously where I, the people I know best, um, they imagine themselves to be a very defiant and proud people. But they, they have been slinking around, wearing their masks, doing all the cafes, bars shut in all the, all the medium-sized towns. In the big towns, it was slightly different, but basically 90% of the country has just been boarded up. But that is a cultural thing because <laughs> it always struck me as a visitor originally, you know, a newcomer, I should say, not visitor, newcomer to France, um, the culture come come the evening, all the shutters everywhere, and and everything is is closed down. There's no there's no one talking. There's nothing. It's it's a sort of a contrast to to Britain, where we do have this idea of the shared space, and I think that's perhaps partly because. Britain is much more densely populated. But is this now, Martin? I mean, sure, surely they've updated their their view on all of this. On, on the on the, the virus. Yeah. Things. 
Yeah. Um, it's actually just this week coming that the the, the uh, vaccine passport is it's that's what they have here is if you're not vaccinated which is my position i'm not vaccinated if you're not vaccinated you're not allowed on trains not allowed on them what yeah so it's getting worse that's well that that vaccine passport is going to be suspended not abolished but suspended right this week coming but it's been in power in, in force for a long time now um yes so people without a vaccine vaccination have not been allowed to go on public transport, not allowed in public buildings, um, not allowed to go in cafes or bars. Based on no science whatsoever. Exactly. Incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And so so it's moving perhaps in the right direction, just very slowly. Yes. And, and it is an element, again, of like, if everyone does something, then the policy can last but when you've got it's like britain <laughs> more or less abolished all the rules to create you know a great deal of resistance from certain quarters but the french know that the french can see that and so it becomes very very difficult for for one government to pursue a line i think the spanish also relaxed all the rules you know france was really sticking out after a while does it not make you want to come back to the uk <laughs> Um, in, in that respect, it did. I know people who have lived in France for 30 years who are moving back just because of that issue. Right. And the the people that you speak to day to day, what, how do they view all of this? Like, do, are they just sort of resigned to it or are they angry or, or well, looking for change? Well, I, my impression is that the French, despite their reputation for marching and being difficult they they they're actually they've been beaten over the years into obedience and they they accept everything the government gives them basically and with this election coming up in the next month in France which I'm not allowed to vote in <laughs> but um the the main opposition to the government the government is already fairly right wing you know it's, it's Mr Macron he's, he's well out on the center right the opposition is the far right, <laughs> and this, this is this is something that's happened to the country. Mm. It used to be, you know, the country that brought us liberté, égalité, fraternity. That's what's written on all the little mayor Marys, the the public administrative buildings in every town. Um, they they um, literally destroyed the concept of liberty because they they told people that you couldn't do anything without a piece of paper from the government you couldn't go in a shop without a piece of paper perhaps i should clarify it for listeners um <clears throat> for about six months in france you were by law obliged to stay in your house unless you downloaded a form off the internet the form said who you were and then it said where you lived and it said, I asked the government's permission to go out to the shop at this time. It is to get essential food and then I will return home. And you had to fill that form out. The police checked it. If you hadn't filled it in, then you got a big fine of a thousand euros. <laughs> and, and they got away with that. Unbelievable. Yeah. And that, as you say, I don't think that could have been done in Britain. No, definitely not. Mm. 
And we're only neighbours. You know, in many ways, we're culturally identical. So in a way, that's a sort of terrifying thing, how, how, how some, these, these rules can be brought in, become normalised. But thankfully, there are countries out there that don't follow that. And ultimately, one hopefully has a has an option to to move somewhere else i know if, if you've got a family it's a lot harder and easier if you're an individual but you still have the choice and voting with your feet in the end is will have the, the greatest well, effect because you don't you they don't want a brain drain and you, you know there are parts of italy for example where they're paying you to go there because the towns are just mm -hmm. dying and that's the last thing they want yeah, I think the ability to move around is very limited. Often people have a job which they can't really easily change. Um, and if you actually own a house, it's a vast expense and complication to sell a house and buy another one. So you, broadly speaking, you have to put up, I think, with what what the country you're in is giving you. Um, I don't know. I, d I don't think I could personally i think it'd be i think it'll be a quality of life thing and i'd, I'd just be determined to reskill at something else if mm. if a job didn't exist elsewhere i mean there was a point where i was wondering you know what it'd be like to live in sweden if things got really crazy i don't know about you tim what were you thinking similarly um my my first choice i mean i don't think i can go there yet um uh, for you know for regulatory reasons but um my 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 bolt holes would have been either Texas or Florida, probably Texas. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you've had a lot of movement in within the US, I gather. You know, people are upping and moving. I mean, some counties are just draining away, California being being one of them, and I think New York being another one. There's this huge exodus of, of people who basically moving, if, if nothing else, for, for tax reasons, because the taxes are going sky high and people are getting worse services for them. But it, uh, are the policies in? T I don't know much about the the differences between the states in terms of their policies. But is the policy in? Well, I know Joe Rogan's in Texas for a good reason. He moved from from California. Um, I thought it was they were slightly more um, lenient, but I, I didn't know if it would be if the the overall government could could you know impose rules that that would override the state rules and therefore. You know, it, it it would be better to look at a different country altogether. I mean, it's fascinating to see that the, the whole states, the, again, this sort of competition between the states. It seems now plausible, if maybe still unlikely, that you might even get secession from certain states now because the situation is becoming so intolerable between the basically the closed states and the and the more open ones like like Florida. So, so they're allowed to do what they want, are they? And they 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 have autonomous control. I, I I think the role of the government is somewhat limited in terms of what it can direct for things like mask wearing, and uh, I assume for vaccine mandates as well. Have you ever considered going to America or living in America, Martin? Um, well, I've I visited America, and uh, it's quite a nice, <laughs> you know, it's 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 a privileged place in a way. In the world, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, there's everything there, isn't there? If you if you live in America, you can see mm -hmm. why people are so insular because you have absolutely everything from you know skiing to mountains to you know cities and and whatever. So it's it's like it's got everything. Um, I I also it's actually I went to to New York not so long ago, and there's a kind of vitality to it as well. You, you know, 
um, you've got all the different communities in New York and things. Um, so it's, in a way, I mean, there's a, a very good side <laughs> um, to America, but then there's this this crummy side, in my view, <laughs> which uh, I particularly associate with the guns. So, for example, as I say, in New York, you would get, you would walk around the street and you'd see sort of someone had just been shot in the street a few minutes ago. <laughs> and this is off-putting. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's slightly. It's not in the tourist brochure. <laughs> but it's it's not as bad as it was, though. I mean, it was awful. I remember in the 90s, um, I went for a visit and uh, it, a friend of mine who was, who was American or lived in America, I should say, for many years, was giving me the rundown of New York and where I should go and where I shouldn't go. And the Port Authority said, basically, if you go there, you're going to get mugged and don't go to this area and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And put, put the fear of bloody God in me, actually. But um, but that was probably right for the time. But then my understanding was they pushed all the... They had a zero-tolerance policy and they pushed all the crime out of it. And it became, you know, New York itself... Um, became uh, a far nicer place and safer place. But I don't know whether things have reversed in recent years. Yeah, no, I, I, it seemed all right when I was there. And I, I think, um, you know, you've got areas everywhere which are sort of no-go areas. <laughs> So, yeah, um, I mean, we had it in the UK with, um, but there was a lot of gang violence in some parts of London that was getting reported as though, you know, the whole of London was like in in a yeah. war zone, which is, which was completely not true. If you notice, there's no headlines like that anymore. And it, even President Trump was saying stuff about it being dangerous here. And it's like, well, it's, that's not quite the way it works. Um, all areas there are always areas that are more dangerous than others but mm. but into gang knife crime had just got out of control the funny thing in london um, as i remember around finsbury park which is you've got very very nice middle class streets immediately next to them some very bad streets in the sense of the kind of street which you take the wrong turn <laughs> then you get knifed yeah, that's absolutely right. There's lots of areas like that in London where you have, exactly as you say, you've got these really rich, um, beautiful houses and then you can just turn and and you go into a completely different area. And and clearly it's far more dangerous. And and that's, you know, the, 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 <laughs> that, that underlines a point, a general point, which is that really everyone's security and happiness is linked and 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 if you have extreme inequality in the society well it's not just about inequality but anyway <laughs> you know it, to some extent <clears throat> it's in all our interests um to 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 pull things to try to give everyone as many opportunities in life as possible not just for them but for us because if you've got if you've got a very extremely divided society, um, and at best you're living in a gated community, but it's not actually much of a you know what the, the the kind of towns we want to live in. It shouldn't be like that. There should be these vibrant towns where the people are all moving around and meeting each other. Um, that's that's. Uh, <clears throat> I, I think that's that's. 
one of the worst things, going back to the virus thing, is, is, is how it sort of was telling everyone to live as individuals. And, and, um, and, and, and I wonder if that's going to be a permanent shift in society that they've done that. You know, it's a sort of, wasn't like a thought out strategy, but I kind of think it's done that. It was a very interesting point that uh, Yuval Noah Harari made in his book that the role of government... He's completely lost his mind now, by the way. Yeah, but before he'd lost his mind, this this point is, is one that I think is really important, and it was that the government's role is to extract the individual from the family. So you have, like, the family unit, unit and families should really stick together, but the government's role is to extract that individual and say, actually, the government acts like a parent and pulls the individual away from the group. And that group obviously should, in a normal functioning family, have that individual's best interest. But the government says that they have the best interest and they, therefore instills a sense of loyalty and control towards the government and away from the individual. And... As you say, Martin, the, the the situation with the pandemic has accelerated that situation because it's it's literally split families down the middle in their views and attitudes and and uh, I think exposed who are really critical thinkers and who just follow whatever the government says headline by headline without doing any any research. Yeah. Moving to the to the back to the book, Martin. What was the yeah. what was the so rethinking thinking came about how what was the inciting inciting event to, to to bring it into being yeah the idea really is is that there are all these different ways of, of thinking and when by thinking i mean seeing the world and and reacting and inter interacting um and that's why i say starting earlier on you know the example of vladimir putin that he, he represents one kind of thinking, um, um, someone who doesn't empathise with other people and has also got a uh, strategy which is working extremely badly for him um, and everyone else. Um, just on the strategy thing, <laughs> um, chapter one in that book is, is The Art of War. Yes. Um, which is actually still a very popular book, um, very old, old Chinese text very obscure Chinese text, which uh, probably shouldn't be so popular, but it's popular in business circles um, and in military circles. It, it was actually used in places like the Vietnam War by the Americans because they found it a very useful guide. Uh, but the sort of idea it has, which is relevant, um, is the clever way to fight a war is to not actually have any fighting. Um, we can see that happen exactly with Crimea, where the Russians grabbed the whole province, the whole, the whole, um, <laughs> the whole a huge area, Crimea, and they just managed to walk in and get it without any fighting. Now, that, that is exactly what the art of war says. That is how you do it. <clears throat> but what they're doing now in Ukraine, apparently, I think they thought they might do a similar thing. Obviously, it wouldn't have worked um, because... The the, the, the the key idea in the art of war is it's all about information. Um, you might say spying and things like this. But by the time you've grabbed Crimea, your, your strategy is very obvious that you are 
you, the, for the Russians don't have any surprise left. So when they, when they try to walk into uh, another bit of Ukraine, people know that they're going to the Russians are, uh, are are seeking to grab the territory, and they're they're going to be prepared and resist it. Um, <clears throat> at the moment, um, I think a lot of what's going on in in that battle is to do with information, where the West is actually funneling quite high quality intelligence. So the art of war is all about <clears throat> information. Now, for us, we're not actually fighting wars, most of us, um, but we we nonetheless <clears throat> have a lot of things that we we can do either the difficult way or the easy way. Um, an example would be for students, um, if you've got a, an assignment, the hard way is to more or less research it from scratch. And the smart way is you get a, a text on your topic by someone who's studied it for years and you read what they've said. And then you, you, you pick up what the, the digested information but you haven't done that. Someone else has put the 30 years work in and you're feeding off it. And that is a very, very, very powerful tool. Um, <clears throat> so I think a lot of the time, the idea in the art of war is do it the easy way. And the easy way normally involves um, improve your research. So it's all about spying knowledge and having the right, the right information before you make a decision, basically. Yeah. And getting the information the easy way. And getting the information the easy way. So, uh, well, well, yeah. So, we go back to like businesses. Um, <laughs> and and it's, it's not necessarily ethical. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's ethical. But the easiest way, say, say you've got a, you want a new product, is you, you find out what your rival's doing and you just steal their idea. That's, that's actually very interesting because there's, um, I recently reread uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point, and one of the really most interesting parts of it was how the fashion industry get their ideas uh, of, as to what will become popular. And on the subjects of information, what they would do is they would have scouts that would go out to the sort of trendy areas, and they would look at the fashion trends there, and they'd also interview certain you know you know leading fashion kids or whatever to say Inf influences yeah like influences to say you know what what do you think what do you think's in and why are you wearing it but they they it was more it was more skilled than that because they wouldn't just say oh you know what you're wearing because they knew that some people just copied other people and just didn't really yeah. know why they were wearing it they would they would hone in on the people that really thought about what they were wearing and why they were wearing it and they, these people usually would choose say music off the beaten track and and uh, were very individual in the way that they thought but they were trendsetters and and as tim rightly says they were influencers and they put a tremendous amount of effort into um trying to find these trends and that really you know it's it was i thought it was fascinating i thought it was absolutely fascinating i didn't realize companies did this to this extent but it speaks that, to what you're actually saying here 100 percent. That, that does that does i mean you could imagine that one company might say well let's have a, a big sort of survey of what people think is let's say it's jumpers <laughs> right you know we'll survey uh, ten thousand people and then they'd get some rubbish 
sort of result back. And the smart thing would be to find to find someone who who is fashionable, basically. Exactly. And see what they're doing. Yes, and it's uh, amazing that not all companies do that. Um, I, I find it really interesting when you get those those surveys through that say, you know, would you recommend this product? And it's a very interesting question, you know, would you recommend this product? Instead of asking, have you recommended this product to a friend? And that's that will tell you whether you're recommending it or not. So it's sometimes how they're asking the question, they that what they're trying, you know, what they're trying to get back, you know, the information they're trying to get, but it's how they're phrasing it that's so important. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, um, as I mentioned, a lot of it is is unethical in in business terms. Um, so that, for example eavesdropping on phone calls and things. And we've got um, things like <laughs> all the electronic assistants, you know, Siri uh, and wh whatever the other ones are, yeah. listening to us and also Google, of course, monitoring everything we put into the search engine. And all this information is being taken back to, uh, to companies now, sold back to companies. And so they know, you know, they say, oh, there's actually a lot of people who want, are worried about this or... What do people want that? Um, and and <laughs> in a way, this is very clever, but it's it's, it's sort of completely opposed to, to the idea that um, what what we say in private is being listened to by Amazon <laughs> and and then sent off, collated. It's, it's, it's sort of terrifying. The, um, well, it's, it's amazing how easily everyone's just accepted it, though, because we all walk around with smartphones, even though they are effectively surveillance devices. Yeah, tracking us everywhere. And and there was this proposal uh, in the EU um, that cars would all have a, to send their location and speed all the time to a central database. And that, that was dropped. But clearly, <laughs> clearly... Um, the idea is, is, is out there and, and it can be done. This, this is the alarming thing. This is what the, the virus rules showed, um, like with the vaccine passport. That, that is, um, they, they can monitor everyone in the country um, and, it, and they can, can, for example, monitor every car and they can say, everyone who's in the cars, we know exactly where, where you are, what speed you're doing, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. That would never could have been conceived of until, till very recently. That kind of a surveillance. Say about ten or so years ago, maybe a bit more. Um, they, they were limited to kind of phone tapping. I would would have thought, and obviously there was internet traffic that they could they could um, get information from. But intelligence services were basically limited to. To, to sort of tapping into phone calls, which I'm and sure... Opening, and opening the mail. Yeah, and opening mail, which mm. which seems so crude. Um, but there is... A, I mean, I accept that there is a balance to be had because, of course, you do want to protect your 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 country against external threats and they and therefore there are times that when you need to, to monitor certain conversations just in case. Um, but... Obviously, it's like anything; it gets abused, and 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 it's it's interesting that this has gone into private company hands. And I wonder where 
I wonder whether they they're now doing it just because they can. So, um, but more and more people are being uh, 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 becoming switched on to the fact that they, that we are the product, and you know we're basically being, uh, you know, like for example, people have moved over to to the the new browser Brave, which my computer seemed to think it was linked to Chrome. So I wonder whether this is actually something that Google's created. And I could be completely wrong, but mm. it does seem to be. It does seem to be independent, but it's it's a, it reminds me also the, these companies are very clever. Um, I was with BT for my um, broadband, and I switched. I can't remember who I've switched to now. And an engineer came around to you know do something on the line, and um, and I said, oh, you know, and he was a B, BT engineer. And I said, well, look, you know, this is I'm moving to a different company. And he said, no, no, they're owned by BT. And so it's almost like, well, whatever you do, you you end up going back to BT. So, for example, VW, they make the golf car, but they also make the Seat and, and lots of other cars um, that are built in the same way, but they're just not branded, so they protect their brand. But actually, you're still just choosing the same product in the end. Hmm. So it's the, um, the illusion of choice. Yeah. Um, that just reminds me of another thing in, in the book. <laughs> slightly shift um the, the idea of the choices you almost like binary binary choices but we should try and avoid that whole idea that we make uh, binary distinctions but what what we need to look at is things more like um pictures um so you're choosing between different pictures and or you might say choosing between different narratives or shape, shapes um, and that's a different kind of thing to the idea of yes, no uh, questions, um, linear sort of thinking. Um, and that kind of thinking that I'm just trying to not very well communicate um, is, is what design thinking is about. So the design thinkers look at a problem, but they, 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 they don't, don't break it down into... To yes no questions they they look at it um in in this this more conceptually rounded way um and they can end up what they do is they create much more sort of a space for a new insight by doing that and is that something that we can learn ourselves is that something that we could train ourselves to do to solve problems yeah I, I mean definitely this is i'm not communicating it terribly well because i'm a binary kind of person but the idea is <clears throat> for example if you're talking to someone and you're posing them questions which are binary and we often do that you, you're actually sh eliminating and shutting down all, all sorts of responses and when you give someone questions which allow them to talk freely and they perhaps are describing things or then all sorts, far more information is generated and they may not necessarily have a particular point. It's all, you know, it's this instrumental thinking all the time. They may not have a particular point. They're allowed just to speak, to say what's going through their mind and then it will give you more information and then you can come in and you can pick out things and, and the whole process is much richer. On the, on the topic of sort of binary questions and the, the, the power of 
metaphor and symbolism. There's, there's a thing I've been looking to to crowbar into the, the the conversation, which I think I've now found my my opportunity to do so. So this is I don't know if you you guys have seen uh, Harold Pinter's The Birthday Party. I, I think I remembered his The Caretaker particularly. I don't know it's similar. I think so I read it once. The, the Birthday Party is a similar material, sort of yeah. absurd, absurdist, sort of slightly strange, creepy. Um, fair. Anyway, so, so someone someone went to see a production. I think I think the birthday party might have been his first play, but they went to see a production and wrote the following letter to him. They said, "Dear sir, I would be obliged if you would kindly explain the meaning to me, meaning to me of your play, the birthday party. These are the points that I do not understand. One, who are the two men? Two, where did Stanley come from? Three, were they all supposed to be normal? You will appreciate that without the answers to my questions, I cannot fully understand your play." And Harold Pinter wrote back and said, Dear Madam, I would be obliged if you would kindly explain the meaning to me of your letter. These are the points that I do not understand. One, who are you? Two, where did you come from? Three, are you supposed to be normal? You will appreciate that without the answers to my questions, I cannot fully understand your letter. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was rather an elegant response. Not, not very nice. <laughs> well, I don't think Harold Pinter ever was going to be a goodwill ambassador for the UN. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the um, so from going back to the, uh, the the way that we are thinking, we should be thinking um, the way the way we should be thinking these days has changed a lot, hasn't it? Because we we have more information than we've ever had at any point in history, mm. and um, we, we are dealing with both the volume of of content and the the number of interruptions and the way that we are interrupted has increased so people's perceptions and people's tolerance for information has got shorter and shorter which is actually so nice that we can talk you know at length on podcasts and it seems it seems to be that whilst short information bursts are are still increasing actually there's clearly a demand for long form um, as an antidote to that uh, to actually really get to the, the heart of, of uh, uh, you know, certain issues, as you see with Joe Rogan and other other long-form podcasts such as this. But um, the main point is that there, there is still, we're having to make so many choices, lots and lots of choices on a daily basis um, about what we listen to, what we respond to, and all, all these things. So learning to think efficiently and... Um, and and not to be biased and not to get drawn into the the, the wrong argument and the unproductive arguments i would say uh, although i i guess you, one could argue that all arguments are productive in in one way or the other um <clears throat> makes the the kind of the art of thinking correctly um even more important i would say so sun Tzu and the art of war is something that it's the longer a book has been around for as talib says the more important that book becomes so if it if it lasts 50 years it'll last 100 years it's, if it's lasted a thousand years it'll probably last 10 um so we can learn from sun too and we can learn from designers and and how they think differently um what other um what other advances in thinking and learning could we could we learn from um that that are, are relatively relatively recent so ta uh, so um daniel kahneman for example in his book, book thinking fast and slow which is <laughs> possibly the most cited book um uh, has has really opened up 
so much more thinking and as to how we we don't correctly um or, or how we're fooled perhaps or when we fool ourselves when we look at problems well you see he, he that book is really pushing back towards the conventional approach which is to be logical it, and, do you see it that way? I, I thought the two sides of it, the, thick, the 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 system one and the system two, said that yes, there there are times when you, you will make a, uh, a a snap judgment, and that's useful if you're you know you could potentially be eaten by a lion, but it also causes errors. But there is, but we also have the system two, which is what we're kind of hoping that we're using now, where we 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 become more thoughtful about our responses and and more considered, but it's just, it takes a lot more work and therefore most people are lazy and just want to do the system one approach. Uh, I have a question that's going to sound really strange, but it's not meant to. And it's, what is the purpose of thinking? What is it for? I mean, it's clearly for lots of different things, but do you, do you think there's a specific, like a primary, a primary purpose, problem solving, survival? Damage limitation. It it is our our way of uh, navigating through the world, as a sort of metaphor. Um, but also, it's our. But way we of but we don't we we don't need it. We don't need a brain and a conscien consciousness to do that because there are animals that can can get around with with far more basic interaction with the world. And uh, you know, look, I'm thinking of the cockroach, for example, that seems to respond to puffs of wind. This is a sort of primary thing. If it, if it, if it identifies a puff of wind, it just goes scuttles off in the other direction. That's a cockroach is thinking about about the world. Well, now it would depend a bit on how we define thinking. Um, if, if I would include that any kind of response, you know, I would say it is a kind of thinking. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of of the complexity of the world, I mean, this is a new the new thing that we have with search engines in it. Um, <clears throat> like Google, um, is that they get all this data and then they look for patterns in the data. And and in a sense, that's what thinking is also about. Um, that we have our senses, which is like your cockroach, uh, but then we, we take all that data from the senses and we process it, which is what I'm calling thinking. Now, I think cockroaches are also processing data, so I'm calling them thinking creatures <laughs> but they're very unsophisticated thinking creatures what what perhaps you're getting at is this high level thinking which is when we think about our thinking um which is and that, and that becomes philosophy that's right that's, that's where the philosophers <laughs> dwell so much but nonetheless whether we think about our thinking or we just are thinking we it, it's it's still this business i think we could we call it pattern pattern solving so um oh, sorry yeah yeah, carry on. Oh, no, so I, so I was just going to add into the mix of thinking and imagination. So part of part of the skill of thinking is to be able to imagine different outcomes and to create what you talk about in your book, thought experiments, which I, I as I found that bit absolutely fascinating because whilst thought experiments and Einstein and his uh, thought experiment that made him think about the the um the limits to the speed of light and passage of of time and space time 
that all came from thought experiments. We're not actually taught to use that in a practical way, which is something that you talk about in the book that you that you can that we could be thinking and using thought experiments and you know we don't encourage children to do that and i i'm minded to um one of einstein's famous quotes that imagination is more important than knowledge and i've always thought that <clears throat> because if you have knowledge you, you have a, a limited amount of information but if you have an imagination then you have an unlimited amount of imagination uh, you have an un unlimited amount of potential, I should say, because with an imagination, you can create whatever you want um, and you can see things in different ways. And And there are many people that, that say, look in business and they look at what's happened before. So they'll say, oh, you know, you can't create a company like this. That's never happened before. Um, you know, people won't buy a, a Hoover that's that's got a bag that can see the, the rubbish you know, who would want to buy something like that? Because nobody's done it before. And there are other people who say, no, I, I think that this will work. And I think that I can imagine people being happy by how much, you know, dirt they've taken out of their house. And, and, and therefore, I'm sure that this will work. And then, then it becomes like, okay, of course, that was obvious, you know, and, and, but of course, it never was at that point in time. I think in the book, Martin, you cite the example of a company that wanted a, a new a new type of lawnmower, but mm. people's natural in, in in natural behavior is they just tweak the existing model slightly, and it ends up being more or less exactly identical. Whereas, ultimately, at this place, they came up with a strimmer, which is a radical radical idea, a radical take on the existing. Yes, because they changed the question. They, they said, "Don't say." Don't consider a new type of lawnmower. Think of a new way of cutting grass. Of, uh, or, or was it even more general than that? Even yeah. maintaining your garden. Or something. Yeah. Um, and and that that is the sort of a cliche. Cliche. It's not exactly a cliche. Um, <laughs> anyway, but it shows the importance of framing. Frame yeah. Question. Yeah. Um, uh, but get, definitely, the book. If there's any point to the book, it is really about the imagination. I mean, I mean that's my personal conviction is that. What what makes us um, what what's important about being human and being a, a, a sort of able to have high level reasoning is is that we can be creative. It's that ability to create be creative that is is special to us, um, and possibly um, animals we underestimate them all the time, but I think they're not particularly creative in in this imaginative way <laughs> you know they can solve problems more than people give them credit for but they're, they're not necessarily just playfully um imagining things because any i think that that is particular to the human being that um mental tool so as you, as you mentioned einstein was a great one for thinking playfully he he he, he, he says in one of his writings you know he says that when he gets ideas they're not through this uh, like uh, academic model of um carefully noting down things and analyzing them he says it's, it's when he just let his imagination have free roam and often it was daydreaming he said that he got his big insights 
Yeah, there's a, there's a great power in that, and and I think people have really tapped into that recently with meditation and mindfulness and all that, which I personally don't do enough of. Um, but I, you know, I wish I was more disciplined and and um, and did that. But it, it it's um, like you might laugh at this, but I have a dishwasher, but I don't use it, and I prefer to do the washing up because it's one of those moments where it gives you ideas like and going going for a walk uh, or going for a run would be usually where i have personally i have my best ideas and i've heard other people say a very similar thing that that um <clears throat> it's it's usually do we have to go to your kitchen to get the good ideas Paul, or can we use our own <laughs> yeah no no you've got to come to mine so oh, okay. do, do my washing up that would be great <laughs> um but it's uh it, it, it's it's something that i've heard a lot of people say and that that they have their best ideas when you know they're they're thinking playfully and and they're not trying to force so, uh, you know something out and that's one of the most amazing things about the mind that you you can have a problem and you can almost then forget about it and then one day the answer just suddenly appears you think oh wow where why don't i just do this and it's like you don't know where that's come from but your mind is working subconsciously the subconscious is really powerful you just leave it leave it to its own devices yeah and there's so a, you pre-prime it and then you can go away and do anything exactly but but the trouble with our uh, our environments at the moment is that we're constantly filling our time with every time we've got some space we'll fill it with potentially i mean i'm guilty of this so i might might fill it with you know youtube or 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 um, I try to learn something, which I think is a, a, yeah. a you know a good thing. But it, you also get interrupted as well. You get into chats and and uh, you know on you know WhatsApp or whatever it might be, and you get so you get distracted. You get pinged, and and one of the yeah. in the fit of peak, I turned off all my. Um, so I have to apologise to people for, regarding Twitter. If you ever contact me and I don't come back to you, I turned off all my notifications on Twitter, and then. I now can't turn them. I don't know what's happened. I can't turn them back on. Maybe I can. I just haven't got around to it. But I also got signed out on my phone um, from Twitter. And I just thought, I can't be bothered to sign back in. I'm just going to leave it. But the weird thing is, I'm still getting all the notifications, which is odd because I'm not signed into Twitter. But at the same time, I'm getting Instagram, you know, this, and I know everybody else is getting the same thing. You get s bombarded by information and Therefore, it just doesn't give you any time to stop and think. Yeah, uh, that makes me think of two things. Um, or um, one is I have a dishwasher, which is never used. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I also find that the, when I wash up, it's not particularly interesting. But your brain is relaxed. You, you know, you're going through. It's, it's exactly like walking. I think you, you have physical activity, but it's a very simple activity and that occupies a part of your brain and then the other part which is the more imaginative part is is released for a moment so the the, the the these activities are actually quite quite valuable now that reminded me about editing <clears throat> documents because um i actually find it quite annoying to print things out at the moment it's a lot of bother however I've, I'm still doing it. And the reason is that I know that when I have a printed document and I'm editing it with a pen, my thinking can go off in many more directions. Um, I can write something and then I can change my mind. 
I can scribble it out, but I can still see it there and I can grab back bits of it. It's much freer to edit with a pen and a typed document than it is to edit by typing in on the computer, which is what I would default to. When you type in on a computer, it's this linear kind of thing. You concentrate on that sentence. You're only looking at one sentence. You make sure it's spelt right. <laughs> and once you've typed it in, you've lost whatever was there before. I know it, theoretically you can have systems which, uh, you know, like word track changes or something. But basically, it's, it's a, it's, 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 it just channels you into one direction when you edit on screen. But on a, when you've got a sheaf of papers and a pen, my, my, you, I don't know if you've found this, but I just find it like frees you up completely to do all sorts of more interesting things. You can suddenly draw a, a, a line through a paragraph, give it a number, and then stick the paragraph somewhere else, change your mind a second later, stick it somewhere else. It, it, <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah, and you, you can... And you can doodle stuff on the side as well if you need to, and it can, and you can write it. I find that it's it's um, much more intuitive to do it, and it feels more more like your your focus is 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 better when it's on a physical piece of paper. Um, yeah, and and also, um, I think like washing up, you can be writing your new paragraph, but your brain is thinking about something different. <laughs> now. now yeah. So you suddenly have a new idea. <laughs> so, 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 do you not? So, do you actually do the washing up for the same reason that I I do? Is it? Is this just a coincidence, or you've just happened to notice it? Um, no, I think it's it's just the same sort of thing. That the time spent washing up, I don't really resent at all because uh, it, it is time that is <clears throat> enabling me to think. Yeah, I mean, one of the other reasons why I stopped using a dishwasher was because I found that I was wasting so much time trying to load the bloody dishwasher and you've got to wait for everything to get dirty before you put it in the dishwasher in the first place, which means that some things end up needing more than one wash or whatever. And it just I just thought, this this just doesn't work. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. It's much quicker just to do it. And and also, I found that benefit of... of um, yeah, you know, it just frees you're, your mind up. You're you're kind of the slave of the machine. Yes, exactly, exactly. You've got to make it all fit, and is it efficient to run it half full and all that stuff? Yeah. I mean, maybe I think too much about these problems, but um, but it but it just seemed to me, you know, in terms of ideas, that you were robbing yourself of a moment of 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 kind of like your own meditation, enforced meditation, because that's what you're trying to do with meditation. Um, I've, you know, heard some experts talk about it and they say, you know, what you, you shouldn't try to do anything when you're meditating. And when you're doing such a menial task, you're effectively meditating because you're not having to think of anything. It's not hard. So mm. your mind just wanders. It's, it's, it's a brilliant way to come up with ideas. Um, so, um, that brings us to doodles. Yes. Now, I'm not a particularly good drawer. In fact, I'm an awful drawer. So I, but I always end up just sort of drawing boxes. I don't know why. Yeah, I know, but that's a kind. That's a psychological type. They really recognise that. The experts on doodling. That there's some people. That's actually very. A clever kind of analytical thinker will do 3D boxes. Oh wow! Okay. Don't, don't be ashamed. Oh, right. 
Okay. And also you, Paul. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, and Tim. And also Paul. <laughs> yes, that's very nice of you. Do you doodle, Tim? Uh, not really. But then I don't use a pen much anymore. Everything's done on a PC. I'm, I'm fascinated by Martin's suggestion that My if, critique. You're gonna, if you're going <laughs> to e- you're gonna edit, you edit in like old school way because that, that that sounds intuitively correct to me. So I, that's that's really interesting. I've I've, I've long felt. I mean, Martin used the phrase "slave of the machine." And I'm convinced that 99.9 recurring percent of people have become slaves of the machine. Um, if, if in no more trivialer ways that they leave their nearly everyone still probably uses Microsoft and uses Outlook and they mm. tend to leave it on. I saw this 20 years ago um, when I was working in an office that everyone leaves it on factory settings. So one of the one of the, the, the pitfalls of that, the unintended consequence of that is that people will get a little bing bong chime when they get a new email. Yeah. So someone might be calling them, say, by phone, but then people would interrupt a conversation um, to check their email, even though it's like just to be about penis enlargement or something, <laughs> and then people would even turn up in 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 reality in in real life for a, for a, a chat or whatever, and they would still be out outweighed by a by a bing bonk email. So people really people really are stupid and and slavish when it comes to how they react to technology. Often, I think. Mm. Well, our new smartphones as well. Well, no, exactly. I mean, this is this is this is the problem. I think we we may even have had. I think I may even have made it on a, on a previous pod about six months ago, but there was um, an interview, I think it was on the Babylon Bee, um, and it was a guy who's written a book about basically the, the, evil of, the evil of smartphones, essentially. And again, I, to reiterate the point, you could not have had the what I would call the convid crisis without the, the slavery of, um, of smartphones, because it's people you know, getting these ridiculous ping notifications that they may have possibly once had the common cold 20 years ago and then have to go and go off and get you know and get a test none of this nonsense would have been possible without smartphones well the other the other thing about the development of smartphones that i was going to say is that they're they're actually in my view becoming worse in how we interact with them so for example i had an i love the old blackberries where you had a real keyboard mm-hmm. and if you've ever tried to type on any like if you're in the back of the it's cab, virtually it, impossible it's virtually impossible and so and and speech to text and, and, kind and of predictive text is just diabolical as well and speech to text has got better but you don't want to be sitting somewhere talking into your phone you know if it, especially if it's a private message <laughs> and so so these uh, and so now we've uh, what i quite like it would was, make dick pics a little bit more uh, problematic well, as well. <laughs> and another thing about uh speaking to the phone is that you you won't go back and change what you were saying. Yes. So you exactly. so you maybe give some more thought to articulating yourself correctly. Mm. But actually, I mean, editing it becomes really hard. That's a really good point. You know, <laughs> if it if it comes out incorrectly, what you're going to do? You've got to go back in and and that becomes a, a terrible faff. But yeah. that like the face ID thing for when you're using your phone to pay for stuff is much like you've got to sort of contort your face around to make sure you've. Your your phone's seen it, so it's you've paid for it. Whereas before, you could just do it with your thumb, and it was it would pay. It was so much easier, hmm. and and so I, I find it very irritating that they're trying to make these things simpler and simpler to use. You know, there's no buttons, and yeah, that's supposed to be better, but it's actually we we love the real tactile 
uh, elements. When 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 are these tech companies going to realize that we don't want everything to disappear? We want real buttons. Real buttons work in the same way that printing things out works. Yeah, I, I had a, a Samsung, and I don't know if you know them. They're very small. <laughs> they're half the size of a normal mobile phone, but it has a tiny, tiny keyboard on it. Um, and I, I quite like that, and I would use it for hardly any... I, I hardly use mobile phones, um, but I, I would carefully compose little messages on it like I was on a typewriter, you know. Um, unfortunately, my my son um, insisted that I must upgrade, and now I have a <laughs> a, a more conventional phone with a screen and all the rest of it. Lost my keyboard. Um, <laughs> but the, the point is that there's this kind of technical progression and everything is always, if it's newer, it's better. But in fact, it's, sometimes the technology isn't getting better, it's getting worse. I think light bulb technology being an example of that. Um, the old filament light was actually much better for your eyes. It was constant. Now what we have, LED lights are actually flashing on and off constantly. They're actually harder for your eye to focus. Um, how, how, also, I think it's environmentally worse. How that could be inflicted on us, but it has been. Um, and it's partly it's inflicted on us because it's new and, and it's more more complicated. So anything that's newer and more complicated, we assume is better. Yeah. So so it comes down to a, a theme that we've spoke about many times on, on the pod. And it's it's really the education system where all of this needs to change. Um, because, of course, you know, the future, the future generations of have got to make better decisions. And, and um, of course, we can try to influence the, the world from where we are now, but it's, um, but it's really them. And, and, and the education system is so woefully out of date. And it's almost to the point where I wonder whether people need to go to... to I mean, the, the experience of going to university and the experience of being in school and the... I'm sure, you know, that's really important from a social aspect. But in terms of being successful in the business that you want to, you know, make your career, there doesn't seem to be any barrier to to just jumping out of school and just getting on with it these days. Whereas, you know, when we were growing up, um, assuming we're all a similar age, it was that's not how it worked. You could you just couldn't do that. You can create a business on the internet um, because you you wouldn't have the contacts and you wouldn't have the potential marketing reach that you have now um so things have changed so much um but thinking seems to have got worse from what we're seeing and the way you know politicians respond to things and 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 that is that is where i think things have got to be improved the most because then i, th I think it's i think it's too much information i think it's slippers of information there's a, i think there's a line we are drowning in information and starved of knowledge but so how do we change that, though? I mean, like books like Martin's is something that should be... People need to be more selective about what they consume, about what they devote their time to. But I think it's more, I think that's one part of it, Tim. I think it is one part of the equation, but it's not completely. Even if they consumed less, would, would they still think better? I mean, they, undoubtedly, there would be an improvement. But if, for example, would the government's response to the pandemic have been any better if the politicians themselves weren't drowning in, in, in knowledge, sorry, drowning in information, um, 
Um, I think and, I think the yeah. thing the response would be better if more politicians were drowning. <laughs> Martin, what's your view yeah. on that? Is is it to do with the amount of time people put into things? Everything's got to be done in a big rush. Yeah, I so, think it's the simplification of of problems. It's like it's like the whole idea of of climate change, for example. Just open another can of worms. Why not? Mm. You know. So people just say, well, it, the, the science is settled, that, that's it. And it's like, well, no, it's not. It's, so more, it's much more nuanced. We probably are having an effect, but it's whether that's enough of an effect and how we measure it. And it's, it's such, such a complex issue. Like, like eating meat, is eating meat bad? Well, it just, just depends. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I mean it, itself, how can it be if we, for thousands of, of years, tens We've of thousands... We've been omnivores. Yeah, exactly. So how can it suddenly be bad? Taking the, the animal ethics out of it, which I know is a big issue. I'm not, not, not saying it's not. I'm just saying these are complex issues that can't be answered with a simple headline. And government policy just seems to go straight to that as, right, meat is bad, climate's changing, we need to do this, and that's the end of it. And it's sort of, if you step outside of that thinking, then you're either at some form of denial or... or you know, a conspiracy theorist or just an uncaring right-wing person or whatever they want to call you. Mm. So how, how can we how can we instill more of this in, in the schooling? Do you think the schools will, will continue to operate in the way they are now? Because they're basically government-dictated sort of... Um, Labour camps. Well, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't quite say brainwashing... But it's almost like that. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. No, it, well, it is, isn't it? And, and in fact, um, we can say it's not just the schools, the colleges and universities. They're all just channeling people um, to the same pattern and suppressing different approaches. And that's despite the rhetoric that you're supposed to, you know, I think even... <clears throat> There's an enormous rhetoric about encouraging people to think independently, but really we don't do it. Um, that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's that's sort of um, why I think uh, the, the philosophy thing is a lot to be blamed for, because philosophy, in a way, uh, should be the most uh, free subject um, and discipline. It's the most narrow subject and discipline. And the book you mentioned, I uh, think. Thinking fast and slow. I, I, I find it fascinating, but the examples it has in it, it has in examples of how people have thought um, what they call thinking errors, really. And that, and that is really the, the, the thrust of the book. It's about this is a thinking error, don't do it. Uh, it's, a, it's a sort of negativity there. And that's what you get in school. It's about um, who, who is going to be caught out making a mistake. And then the last the person who makes least mistakes is the the winner at the end of education, and that's a terrible way to to, to explore things. It should be the reverse. It should be about you can make mistakes. They're, they're not really the crucial thing. The crucial thing is to also come up with good ideas and new ideas and the creative ideas. And and we're we're making a societal error when we concentrate on drumming people into the right pattern rather than allowing them to explore. 
that's such an interesting point because you, you make it in the book as well. And, and also like with regard to NASA, from what I understand, whenever a rocket explodes, everybody applauds because they say, you know, in, in testing that they are yeah, in testing, <laughs> in testing, obviously. Depends how many teachers are on board, I suppose. Yeah. But, <clears throat> but the problem there is that, that you're taught in schooling that you shouldn't be wrong. And that's not correct. You you should be wrong because like making mistakes is how you discover the answer to things. And that's that's the the the, the philosophy behind what NASA's trying to do. They're saying, <clears throat> okay, if we discovered that this explodes, it means that there was a problem. And if we've discovered that problem now, we can eradicate it. But if we don't discover a problem, then it will lay dormant until the last moment and until perhaps a critical moment when we, you know, we can do nothing about it. So it's, it's this, this, this sort of thought process that needs to change. If we think of colleges and universities, you know, you have your seminar and you say the wrong thing and it's a bad thing. You know, everyone is looking at you thinking you got it wrong. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and there are people who don't say anything all, all year because they're uh, averse to being wrong. <laughs> yeah, and and they'll go through that whole blooming course. I know them because I've done a bit of teaching. You know, they'll go through the whole course, um, just keeping their head down. Um, and and you've got a society where ninety ninety five percent of people basically are frightened to say anything. That's where we're really quite dangerous. So Tim, you went to Oxford, right? And and yep. and so you know what better university could you've gone to if if um whole <laughs> um what what was your experience of being there was it was it um was it one that you cherish did you find the whole process of were you encouraged to think differently or were you just uh, specializing something in such a way that that everything that the prof- you know the, the professors had taught you had to you had to sort of fall into line otherwise you know the way you interpreted something was was considered wrong if it wasn't their opinion i i guess i consider myself lucky to have gone when woke crap had only just started to infect the the teaching environment so it was fa- fairly freewheeling um Firstly, I, I read English, which was a sort of particular, I suppose, passion of mine. And so I, I had a great time being able to study fairly extensively. So you get the Oxford English course is, is fairly, it's fairly wide ranging. So you basically study, unless it's changed since the 80s, then you get to study everything from Beowulf all the way up to Dickens. Um, so it, it's basically a thousand years worth of, the, of, of, of great writing, which is, you know, a real privilege to be able to do, um, in terms of, so I, I, it was, it was, I found it a very free environment and, and to this, uh, to, to your question, at least half of what I got out of university had nothing to do with the degree course. It was the, the social aspect of, you know, of mixing with. Uh, not not universally, but many very bright people and very interesting people. Um, I'm I'm struck by one particular observation though. This from from Donna, my fiance, and we we met quite earlier at um, uh, at college. And I I said to her one time, probably in the second term, um, I'm just going to the English faculty for a lecture, and she said, 
you do realize that there's been this radical new technology they've invented called books. <laughs> and I, I stopped going to lectures after that because she, she kind of not nailed me with that one. Um, because if you, th if you think about it, the lecture is a very old way of disseminating information that, that predates the printed word. But reading English, is it is the sort of questions that they would ask um, in, for, in order for you to get a good grade? Do you have to have their interpretation? Because you could have your interpretation. That wasn't, which... that wasn't, that wasn't my, my um, situation at all. Wow. So to my shame, I mean, I feel a little bit guilty about this, but it's more just the, the, the nature of the beast. The, the bit in my degree that I got the best mark on was the Shakespeare paper, and that was one where I basically wrote, wrote, um, remem wrote, um, committed to memory my my own essay. So I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't stealing off anybody. But by the time that I got into the exam room, and then it, it frankly, it wouldn't have mattered what the question was. So I was able basically just to regurgitate sort of pr prior material, and the fact that 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 got me my best marks led me to suggest suspect that the whole the whole thing was somewhat. Um, Basically, that there was there were there was something rotten in Denmark. Mm. If you could game the system, basically just by tell, telling it whatever you wanted, in other words, it, the whole thing ultimately came down to a triumph of style over substance. You you have mm. a, a, an amazing memory because you've proved it on the podcast many times, and I know from personal experience how you remember stuff. Um, that gives you in that environment a tremendous advantage. I'm not just, you know doing down your your, your skill. Um, in any way, but it, it does help if you're able to remember stuff like that. Um, but Martin, your experience of school, schools and colleges and universities is far more up to date than, than ours. How have things changed if any, in, in, in any way? Um, well, <clears throat> my limit, my experience, I don't think they have changed very much. Um, there's a practical thing, which is that if you've got, say, 30 students um, and you've got a, you've, you've been doing a certain topic and you set an assignment, you have just a, that series of points which you're looking for. And then every time a person mentions the point, which is what I think Tim was getting at, <laughs> every time they mention the point, they get the tick. Now, some people might write an, an answer which is, completely different and this is a formal thing you're supposed to have phrased your question to prevent people answering in a different way right so the, 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 the structure of academic teaching is that you you have set information and they are supposed to regurgitate it and then you tick you you mark it as done successfully and you exclude people from giving alternative versions um and I, I think that is the reality is that when people show creativity and imagination in college, that is almost always going to be to, to their disadvantage. Um, and the people who are unimaginative but are regurgitating information are the ones who will be rewarded. Now, when we get out of college and we go into any, um, into business, into uh, government, whatever it is, um, the situations are all new and you actually, you need to be adapting, you need to be approaching them in a fresh way. And I think the big danger in society is that we, we have reduced ourselves to cogs in machines and we're not using the extra abilities that we have. 
Yeah, so that there is also an advantage to being being able to remember so much information as Tim does, for example, because you could, if if you could combine the ability to um, remember stuff and then be creative with it. So, for example, Tarantino's um, encyclopedian encyclopedic knowledge of films that he then brings to his own filmmaking with his own style and his, and his own imagination is what makes him him. And so um, there is an element of, of, of um, memory techniques, but then it's a shame that that, I guess it's more of a sh- than a shame. It's, it's um, you know, we, we as a country would like to be, um, you know, beating other countries and, 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 and ahead of the curve. And therefore we've got to be thinking of ways to improve our schooling system and trying to encourage this independent thought and imagination. But at the same time, you know, I accept that there's a certain amount of, of, um, of, of teaching that has to be by rote because you have to learn the basics or learn the rules before you break the rules. Um, but it's just a question of how, how we how we do that. And I, I know that individual lecturers um, will often try to teach the curriculum, but the best ones then say, well, this is the curriculum, but then this is how you think outside of the box. And this is this is where you could be taking it. And, th- and that's the inspiration that that, you know, creates the, um, you know, the, 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 the inverted commas geniuses of the future. Potentially. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I mean, it's true that for this is almost like two parts to it, isn't there? There's, there's the, the nuts and bolts, which you want to feel that people do know them. And then there's the what you, they might go on to do that's a new and original. And most of us would not really, you know, we go to a doctor. We don't really want a creative thinker. We want someone who knows the relevant <laughs> facts. Um so there's a, there's a large, you can make a good argument for an education system that just drills people, fills them up with information that's useful, checks they've learned it. Um, but although there's a good, a good purpose for this, it's also true, and I think the Americans excel in this, is it? it's also true that you, you want people who are going to go a bit further and to come up with new things, and it's the new things that are difficult and so the, the, the place to put the effort is into creativity in the system um, because that's where the big rewards will come. And we tend to put all our effort into the drilling. And people pick up things um, quite quickly in the real work. You know, if you, if you get a job, then you learn on the job. Uh, what you did at school or at college often isn't almost irrelevant to what you go on to do i i I, i'm a writer right now i did do quite a lot of english in my education one way or another you know because it's all about essays and and writing in english but most of what i've done ever since has had to be self-generated and i think most of us recognize that in fact you teach yourself 95 percent of what you're going to do so that ability to teach yourself is often um reduced after a formal education rather than enhanced that's a very interesting statistic and actually i think the problem um that you speak about when you you say if you go to a doctor you don't want a creative response 
within the next perhaps 10 years, maybe sooner, maybe longer, that will all be solved by AI because we're, we're kind of heading there already. So the, these these jobs where you don't want creativity, AI will step in. And where jobs where you cannot um, use AI, I mean, you can use AI for create certain creative pr- purposes, but I think it's kind of a self-defeating thing because you've you, the individual's got to program it with it, the creativity in the first place. And therefore, it's it, it, for me, that doesn't... Yeah, it's, it, it works to a point, but true creativity would have to come out of... It wouldn't be bounded by what a computer thinks is creative, if you see what I mean. Um, and I think very often we can't explain why we might come out with an idea um, ourselves. So if we can't explain it, we won't be able to program it. So true creativity will always, for me, be in the realm of, of the human being. Um, or for a, a hell of a lot longer um, than than sort of simple problem problem solving of, of um, an issue of, of whether you've got you know you've got a pain in your arm what it could be etc um, which can be reduced to what's called an expert system. Yeah. Um, so um, so Tim um, and and Martin, any final? Any sort of final thoughts uh, before we go to our media picks? Any final questions or, or anything that we haven't covered that you think we should? I'm done. Um. <laughs> we've, okay. we've solved life, the universe, and everything. It's fantastic. 42 is the answer. <laughs> my, my, my only final thought is that a good thinking skill is knowing how to not consider what a garbage to throw out all the, all the irrelevant things. Um. So to be selective in that way is actually quite quite valuable. So it's the critic, it's the critic skill I'm getting at. <laughs> and for example, I'll give you a very easy example: books. Um, I know a lot of people. If they have a book, they think they read it from start to finish. Um, really, the, the smart thing to do is to flick through it, and you, if you find a bit that's interesting, you read that. I won't say I, maybe you can do that to my books, you know. But the fact is. You can get so much further uh, in in everything if you are selective and you you say that this isn't useful to me. I'm not going to look at it anymore. Um, it might be listening to the radio. If you listen to Radio Four in the UK, the talk radio, um, the new technology is a blessing because I can listen on um, repeat and I listen to a program and I, I can just skip say, you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, it can be reduced to two minutes, that program, because I eliminate all the stuff I don't want to hear. So I think that that would be my <laughs> slightly <clears throat> reverse uh, position on things. I do think we should learn to be more critical. It reminds me of a story um, about Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, apparently, at his interview for English at Magdalen College, Oxford, was asked to translate... Um, some of the New Testament in ancient Greek, and it was an account of the crucifixion. So he so he sort of launches into this uh, translation into English, and the tutors are impressed. They go, "Thank you very much, Mister Wall, but that'll do." And he says, "Oh, go on. I want to see how it ends." <laughs> I'm not sure of the link. 
<laughs> well, it's about it's about, about about leaving things half half finished and cu- cutting to the chase. But oh, anyhow, yeah. it, was, it was another anecdote. I was determined to crowbar in somehow, and by hook yeah. or by crook, I pulled it off. So, uh, oh, yeah. so there. Ingenious. <laughs> so, so Martin, you finished your um, rethinking thinking book, and and this is going to be. Is it in the shops now, or will it be in the shop soon? Um, it's in the shops in as much as there are any shops left. Yeah. Is it on Amazon? <clears throat> on Amazon, that's perhaps the more yeah. pertinent question. Yeah. Uh, okay, brilliant. So now the next question is, what what's next for you? Um, well, I'm, at the moment, um, I'm working on a book on humour, which is it's like I've been saying today, uh, that I think the, the things that are particularly human, like the creative thinking and imagination, we undervalue, but we also undervalue humor um so i've been looking at the what what is it what 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 makes things funny um that's a obviously a topic that people have written about there's freud wrote a classic work on on humor and it's what its subtitle was and its relation to philosophical ideas wow okay that this is totally new to me i'd never Uh, thought of that yeah it it was new to me as well you see and and so that's my project and I, i what i do in it i also actually have a large proportion of jokes because that is the mater- the raw material and the, i find that most jokes are not very funny but anyway i've dug out ones that i think are funny also philosophically interesting so that's my new project but isn't humor very much a personal taste and and so what what i think is funny may not be what you might think is funny or we might both agree that something's funny but you might find it far more the, funny the, there is that there is that Nonetheless, there there are certain things that, you know, it's, it's a kind of science thing. <laughs> you, you look at all the jokes and you can see some underlying structures there. Um, and it's interesting when you strip them down to see how they work. You know, to, there, there, is a, there is a way to investigate humour like that. Um, I, I find um, some of the content is to do with words and logic and language and that that is also interesting that you can approach the whole of philosophy this is this is how i'm sort of doing the book really it is a philosophy book but it's philosophy where your tool is looking at it through jokes i think it's an very interesting point because within our society at the moment the way comedians are trying to be cancelled and silenced when they are simply just reflecting what's going on in society and you know the whole area of humor and and its function in society i think in itself is is a fascinating area so bob bob monkhouse this is one of his best he said uh, when i was young I told all my friends i was gonna be a stand-up comedian and they all laughed well they're not laughing now <laughs> that's right yeah <laughs> i've heard it before Classic. but i still love the way you say it it's just great um well fantastic martin we really look forward to that and um how have you got a timeline? I don't want to sound like your agent, but how, what's your timeline? Like? I haven't, I haven't got a publisher. No, no. But, um, I've got, you know, I've got people interested, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed on that one. Right, and and so in between, you're writing um, ad hoc reports and 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 um, articles. I guess you get asked from various sources to do that. Yeah, you know, I'm doing a lot of Twitter. Yes, <laughs> you can spend Twitter. A lot of time what, what what's Twitter. that, Martin? Sorry, what's that? Well, what what's Twitter? What what is Twitter? Yeah, it is it is it is a a black hole. Huh? <laughs> it's a time sink, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so brilliant stuff. Um, so let's let's go to media picks then. Um, so 
Tim, do you want to kick it off? Sure. I'm going to show how I can I can turn on a dime. So these are both in responses to stuff that we've been discussing on the pod today. The first is Martin mentioned um, you know, the experience of church and going into a church or a cathedral. And it reminded me of a, a really beautiful poem by Philip Larkin um, called Church Going. And we can publish the uh, the poem in its entirety on in the show notes. The other one, because we've also talked about Greta Thunberg, is, and I've only just discovered this, uh, it's a dance version of Greta Thunberg's How Dare You speech. And it is the funniest thing I've seen in, in, in a long while. And it's just like a three-minute track on uh, YouTube. So it's Church Going by Philip Larkin and Greta Thunberg's How Dare You dance version. Fantastic. Hmm. Martin, do you have a, a... You may have forgotten that we do this at the end of the show, but... Um, if you if you have, I can give you mine while you think of something. But it, yes, okay, okay. So it it can be anything. Book film. It doesn't have to be as you've just heard. Tim's. Yeah. It's not relate. Doesn't necessarily have to be related to anything. It's just really good or 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 if, to avoid something really bad. But mine was going to be um, a Veritasium link, but I'm going to save that for another day and equally turn on a dime because we're talking about comedy. I think um, it has to be modern family because if you want if you want good comedy i don't think you can really go um too far wrong with what i consider to be one of the best comedic series on on ever on tv it's just fantastic admittedly some of the episodes are variable um between you know good and absolutely outstanding but there's so many of them that's 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 inevitable i suppose but it's the style of writing that i think is just absolutely brilliant so you get some comedy that's just one-liners and they're funny they're really funny and they're situational and you know um it's Friends... also got a cast of thousands modern family um, by comparison to some things well if you look at friends for example friends is very much uh which i really like as well it's it's very much one-liners so it's witty one-liners mm. given the situation it's what would you say yeah. if you had time to, to to think of a really smart funny answer um but what I love about Modern Family is that it's visual as well. It's mm. the way they get some brilliant visual gags in there. And they're so subtle sometimes, you know, um, <clears throat> that that I think that's why it transcends a lot of other comedies. It's got those, it's working on multiple levels. And um, so, yeah, Modern Family, it's just, if you're, if you're going to waste time with anything, I'd waste time with that. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Gauntlet thoroughly laid down now. <laughs> so, Martin, if if you don't have one, that's absolutely no problem. I, but I've got a, a book which is on my my um, has been on my table, as they say. Uh, but it, what I what I like about the book is its idea, its, its concept is that you go out into the countryside and you look at wild plants. The particular thing that you look at them for is, can I eat them? <laughs> And the book is called Foraging Cookbook. Um, oh. It's actually a very beautifully illustrated book with recipes for and things that you're supposed to just find growing, you know, humble plants. The author is Karen Stevenson. And um, it's, um, it, it's, 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 I don't think there's much of a market for such a book, right? Or, or maybe there's an imaginative market because people imagine doing it. But basically, <laughs> I'm afraid we, we, the, the, 
we were not really going to do it. But that's what I like about this book is it, it's saying it, it's, a, it's, it's a purely imaginary world it creates for me, a world in which, yes, I, I might go out and I might find these plants growing and then I might make this elaborate meal. None of it will happen, but the, the ability to imagine and pretend that it might happen is, is, is what liberates you. Isn't it like um, picking wild mushrooms, but you've got to be very careful as to what's poisonous and what isn't? Yeah, I've done that. I've, I've gone on mushroom hunting things, but... I'm, well, they I, don't I, move I, very fast. It's, it, 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 it's extremely interesting, I mean, to go in these old woods and to hunt for mushrooms. But I'm at the same time, I'm a very nervous person and I'm really scared of eating them. <laughs> yeah. So I don't actually pick them. I just like looking, looking and seeing mushrooms growing. Yes, yes, um, and um, there's a there's another brilliant series on um, fascinating. Was it fascinating fungi I've mentioned before on Netflix? That uh, if you're into that, it's it's just amazing. So the the the, the power of and the healing power of, of mushrooms and you know the I'm sure that there's a, a tremendous advantage to being a, being able to to pick these flowers and 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 plants and and to cook them um from a nutritional point of view as well so you know it's unadulterated food which yeah. is which is a big problem that we have these days where everything's been treated in one way or another but but martin look um just to say thank you so much for coming on the show we'll put show we'll put links in the show notes to um your, your twitter handle and to your website and um just for a reminder if, if people are just listening in the car and they can't you know, they're not clicking on links. Could you just tell us where people can find you? Um, well, on Twitter, yes, uh, at Doc Martin Cohen, D-O-C Martin Cohen. Um, and um, on Amazon, uh, <laughs> put in Martin Cohen, add philosopher. That's not because I like being a philosopher, but that's just how you find me <laughs> on Amazon. And... Uh, you, you will get, uh, I have a page there with all my books on. Brilliant. And also you've got a, a website? Yes, uh, Martin Cohen Author, all one word. I should, as you say, I don't actually like Amazon either. I'm sorry. To, <laughs> you, have to, you have to go with the flow a bit. And uh, Amazon dominates the book market. And so I always tell people to go to Amazon. Of course, I would much rather that they went to a bookshop. <laughs> Failing that, they can go to the publisher site. Yes. Um, and who is the publisher? Uh, for, the, for Rethinking Thinking, it's Imprint, Imprint Academic in Exeter in England. Right. Okay. And, but it will be in all normal bookstores, presumably. Yeah. Presumably. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Well, look, Martin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Cool. And we look forward to having you back when you've um, written your, your next book. And, My jokes uh, book. Sorry? The jokes book. Yes, yeah, looking forward to that yeah. already. That's, yeah. that, that sounds great. And, um, you know, thank you once again. And, um, mm. and, yeah, best of luck. Okay, thank you very much, Paul and Tim. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Martin. Cheers. Take care then. Bye now. Bye. Thanks, everybody. And thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.